Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hello and welcome to South Beach Sessions. I am Dan Lebetard. I want you to know that we taped this interview a couple of weeks ago. If you were listening to the radio show, you know that we had Armin Katayan on and I had a million questions. And you're probably tired of hearing me talk about that Tiger Woods documentary on HBO. But I really was impressed at the work they did over many years to really sort of show us the roots of how a champion became a champion in a way that sports doesn't often do and furthermore tiger woods has been in the public consciousness for 20 or 30 years and i don't feel like ever known him enough or had the context to know him enough as i did with this documentary so i wanted to talk to him some more but then tiger woods got into that horrible accident and we didn't want to release this at a time that seemed opportunistic on the tiger woods news and we also wanted this to have the proper context so this is me talking to a very good journalist who has done very good work about the life of Tiger Woods, not trying to be salacious about the dirty stuff, but just trying to understand how a champion became a champion. And I thought, beyond being spectacularly informed, I thought he was nuanced and thorough and fair about showing us a side of Tiger Woods I hadn't seen and then allowing us to make the decisions and the judgments about how we felt about that. So here's Armin Katayan, one of the finest journalists I've known over 30 years in this business, with an icon and the kind of information I don't think you're going to be hearing in too many other places. Here's Armin Katayan. If you've been listening to our radio show for a long time, you know that I admire the work of this man, Armin Katayan. He's done a lot of good journalism over decades in this business, going back to Sports Illustrated and beyond. And I wanted to talk not just about the documentary that he did about Tiger Woods that I'm sure you are very tired of hearing me talk about, but I came away really impressed that someone was able to go to the trough where everyone has gathered across many, many years, and they were able to give me a perspective that I had not seen before. So I wanted to talk to Armin a little bit about his process and not just that movie that I'm sure you're tired of me talking about, but you can watch it for yourself on HBO, HBO Max, a two-part documentary. I wish it had been longer. I hope that at some point down the line, Armin Contain decides to tell the other parts of this story because... We haven't gotten this kind of unvarnished look at Tiger Woods before. And I just want to talk in general about one of the greatest athletes overcovered by any measure and yet somehow not covered enough because I had never seen this glimpse before of Tiger Woods. So Armin was on the radio show and we wanted to have him on to have a larger discussion about just Tiger Woods in general, one of the great athletes of our time. As we're looking at all these other guys like Michael Jordan in a nine-part series and Tom Brady and Derek Jeter's got one coming out as well because I believe this is the most flawed look, the most human look that we're going to get at any of these guys. And Armin has been gracious enough to join us again. So thank you, Armin. Among the things that we did not cover the last time was sort of just the painstaking process of making something like this where you are just absorbed and obsessed over I don't know how long writing a book 
How long did you spend in the world of Tiger Woods? What can you tell us about how meticulous this project was? Well, it was uh, exhausting, Dan, in a lot of ways. I mean, exhilarating and, and exhausting, I think, at the same time. We were, between Jeff Benedict, my co-author, and myself, I mean, we spent three years of our life just embedded in Tiger's world. And, you know, when we started the project, we were coming off of the system, which was this deep dive we did into big-time college football. And that was another two-year project that basically consumed my life. And honestly, I didn't think that Tiger merited another book. Um, there had been some 20 books written already on him, either by his father or by members of the golf media. And we were just like, wow, does the world need another Tiger Woods book? But what we discovered early on was, is that a lot of those books, most of the books were written with a very specific time period of Tiger's life. Earl, certainly in the upbringing of Tiger Woods, when he turned pro, John Strage wrote a really good book about Tiger's upbringing and also as, as he was turning pro, there were books written, you know, in the aftermath of his, of his accident in 2009, but there had never been this comprehensive biography of Tiger's life. And I think, as you mentioned, you know, there's a reason is, is that he was invisible in plain sight in a lot of ways. And that narrative was repeated over and over and over, whether it was by Tiger's people or whether it was the golf media. And getting underneath that, cracking through that surface, took a lot of time. And a lot of it, as you well know, is built upon trust. I think if there's one word that has served me very well over the course of my career is when you gain the trust of the Bill Belichicks of the world or the Nick Sabans of the world, or I'm sure your relationships with Pat Riley and people like that, that equals access. And then that equals information. But in this world, we didn't have that ready-made access that golf writers had. So we had to build that ourselves. And I think we had an advantage to a certain degree because we were coming in from the outside in. We didn't have any preconceived notions, preconceived ideas as to what the book was going to be about. And so really the first year was nothing but really hardcore research. I mean, I think Jeff and I, between the two of us, we read 20 books on Tiger. We read books about Buddhism, the Navy SEALs, sex addiction, the business of, of golf, and so we had a foundation of understanding before we really started to make a list of people that we wanted to talk to. Some of them were household names, Hank Haney, Butch Harmon, Stevie Williams, people like that. But others were, were very different. They were names that may only come up once or twice in an article that might have been in the LA Times or in the Augusta Journal or something like that. And, and so we put that list together and, and then you'd have to reach out to these people and then you'd have to explain what you're doing. And then you have to gain their trust and then you have to go and oftentimes meet them in, in person. I can't imagine doing it now in the COVID era because so much of this was very personal, getting to know people, them getting to know us. And then, as I mentioned before, we put together this massive timeline of Tiger's life, which I had never done. I think I'd written 10 books before this. I'd never done a timeline and I, I don't think I'll ever do another book if I do another book beyond the one I'm working on right now without doing a timeline because it was so beneficial to us. And then you have to, you know, when the reporting, and then you have to write the damn thing, you know, and that took us over a year just to get that part done. So when we went to Simon and Schuster, when they met our price and, and we said we're, we were gonna do it, we were very clear with, with John Carp and Jovi Ferrari Adler, our, our editor, that look, we need three years for this book. And we needed in the end, we needed every last minute of it because so much of Tiger's life was changing 
right up until almost the publication date in March of 2018. What do you regard as the trust breakthroughs along the path? Well, I, I know what it was like for me in the NFL, and it's really how you work. These coaches are very in tune to how people go about their business. And if you, I've often said to journalism classes, and you know this, if you say A and you do B, you're going to get away with that a couple of times in your career. And you might get a big story off of saying, you know, this is off the record when it turns to be, when you write the story, you use that information improperly. But I think, you know, if you say A, you have to do A, you can't do B. And you, and that over time, you develop a reputation and a, a sense of integrity in your work. And thankfully, you know, with both Jeff and I, we have this body of work that people in many cases were familiar with, whether it was Barry Frank, you know, who was instrumental in so much of, of Tiger's early career at IMG or Stevie Williams or Hank Haney or people like that. So that helps you. But then you still have to convince people that you have noble interests at heart, that you're not out to get Tiger. You know, that's to me is like, if I wanted to get Tiger, I would have spent a year on the book and not three years. And I just, that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to understand Tiger and try to humanize Tiger. Well, it was, so, to, it was to get him. It was just to understand him. Though when you say get, to get him, him. To understand him. Exactly. Not, I wasn't, we weren't out and you know it. I hate, I hate those words when people say, oh, are you out to get the guy? If I was out to get the guy, I, I would have done it in 15 minutes. You know, I could have done that in a, in a blog post. And for me, at this point of my career and Jeff at his, the point of his career, these are the kind of mountains that we wanted to climb. You know, big time college football was a huge mountain. We were looking for another mountain. And, you know, we said Mount Woods is about as big a mountain as you want to climb in this business. And I was really proud that I would say 95% of the people that we reached out to in the end agreed to cooperate with us in some form or fashion, some on background, some just providing information that um, we could not attribute in any way, shape or form but helping us understand Tiger at certain points of his life and then other people willing to go on the record, which was huge for us. I'll get back to Tiger in a second, but you've mentioned the system now a couple of times and I want to go back since you spent two years there. And I know we've talked to you about the book before, but the single thing that left you sort of feeling bad about the way the system works in college sports with the big-time coaches. The one single thing, Armin, you're, you're not squeamish. You've seen a lot in sports over the years. But the one thing in your reporting over two years on that book where you're like, this is gross, this is wrong, this is unfair, well, what do you point to? Well, I think it's to? the word student-athlete. It's athlete-student. There was no question that in our mind that the hours that at the elite programs, the hours the athletes were putting in, and the emotional pressure that they were under and feeling in, in big time programs, you couldn't help but feel for them. And I mean, that 20 hour rule is laughable as far as I'm concerned with the NCAA, because we knew that there were, there were actually players on the team whose job it was to create the 20 hours that they could send into the NCAA every week in terms of that they were in compliance with that I mean, I think if memory serves me right, there were like 40 point something hours, 45 hours a week that we counted up. And then when you relate that to how much academic time they were spending, it was like 32 hours. So to me, 
that was the one thing that just smacked me right across the face was, and I knew that it, you know, we can all have that student athlete conversation, but to really witness it. And then I remember this quarterback from Arizona state, I asked him, you know, how many weeks a year do you get off? Do you just get away from the program? And he, he goes one, two, three, four, five, five weeks a year, 47 weeks a year, you're involved in some form or fashion with a major college football program. And so then now when we get into the whole name, image, and likeness debate, should athletes be paid, the whole amateur shamanderism issue, that to me really struck me. And then, and then I guess the one just funny thing, I talked to a quarterback at a, you know, really a big time power five program. And I, I said, you know, what's it like to be the starting quarterback at your school? And there's a chapter in the book called Big Man on Campus. And I mean, if you want to know what it's like to live a life at 18, 19, 20 years old, to have everything and anything at your feet, anytime you want it, the most beautiful women, if you need money, you need a car, you need whatever, it's available to you. So I found that to be a fascinating part of the system because nobody talks about that. You know, nobody really is, is going to go on a talk show and say, oh, God, it was great to be the quarterback at XYZ University, and I got everything and anything I ever wanted there. Well, the sexual elements, I thought you handled the Tiger stuff with great grace, because if you were out to get him, I really do think that you oh. could have damaged him with the audience and with his sponsors and with everybody if you had simply spilled all the details about his sexual appetites. And my guess is you were embedded enough in this world that you could have. I can't even imagine how tempting that was, Armin. It wasn't as tempting as you think because I've, I've learned over the years. I think the Armin Katayan at Sports Illustrated in 1985 doing the investigations I was for the magazine would have been, certainly I would have presented that information to my editors there. And this was a self-edit, both Jeff and I, before we showed anything to Jofi at Simon & Schuster, we self-edited a lot of things out because frankly, I've come to the conclusion now, Dan, that if people's personal lives are their personal lives, if you do something that puts your personal life into the public eye, as Tiger did that night, that Thanksgiving night, when he hit the fire hydrant, that's a different dynamic. But to go out and to actively excavate somebody's personal life for your own personal gain, I've really been turned off to that. And I, I feel like in our book and in the doc, the piano keys were hit in a way that you understood what, what the music was, but you didn't have to bang away at it long enough and hard enough where people turned away. And ultimately, one of the things I think I'm most proud of about both the book and the doc is there's a lot of women that read the our book. And they read it because it's a great story about an athlete. It has very little to do on so many levels with golf. And it's about relationships, not only with Tiger's father, but it's really a relationship story with women. And I, I felt like we handled that really well. And that's not easy to do because it's hard to put yourself in other people's positions a lot of times. And so Jeff and I, I mean, thank God I've worked with Jeff Benedict for the better part of 20 something years now, dating back to my days at ABC News when Jeff was at the Center for the Study of Sport and Society with Richard Lapchick. And we got to know each other and as friends before we became collaborators. 
And I don't think I could have written this kind of book, both The System and Tiger, without somebody like Jeff, because he's such a good person and has such a, a terrific barometer for what's right and wrong. And that really, that really helped us because I think at a certain point in my life previously, I would have gone a little deeper into things. And I'm glad we didn't. That's fundamental decency that you don't often find in today's journalism, but it is juxtaposed against Armin. You just getting done saying you wouldn't imagine what a 20-year-old quarterback's life would be in college football. So from that vantage point, I can't imagine what Tiger Woods' life was oh. that in that realm. A 20-year-old kid in college does not have a tiger woods had every appetite available to him with a freedom uncommonly known to any man who's ever lived i would imagine you're right i mean vegas to me i spent a lot of time in las vegas and i had connections in vegas through friendships that allowed me to get into that world that that we explored in the dock but also you know what it was like to be at the mansion which is that the villas behind the mgm grand which are as private as private can be um, in Las Vegas to go from the private plane to the private car, to the private entrance, to the private elevator, to the private room. And when everything is at your disposal, when you're a, an athlete of the stature of Tiger Woods and, and I'd been in Vegas during that period of time with the bottle service and in, in those high end nightclubs, you know, where you can spend three or four or $5,000 in, in the course of an evening and not even blink an eye. I saw what was available. And then in talking to other people, in the Vegas community who intersected with Tiger, either in the clubs or in other places at parties, there's no question that anything and everything that he wanted was at his, his disposal. And that was another thing that I've learned over the years is to not put myself or to try to moralize about somebody else's position in life because I, under no circumstances can I understand what it's like to be an athlete of, of Tiger's stature. I've seen celebrity, you know, I've experienced modicums of that in the course of my lifetime, but nothing that would be remotely close to what a Michael Jordan or a Charles Barkley or a Tiger Woods or a LeBron James or Steph Curry or people like that. And so we were careful and it's just not in me. You know, I'm just not in me. To oh, do but that. I just thought, Armin, I just thought it was the, the touch in the documentary shown by the glee with which the National right. Enquirer reporter yeah. was just enjoying all the opposite of the things that you're talking about. And it was unstated. And you can make your own judgments and you can be discerning. But without a word, you guys put someone in front of us who represents the change of that entire mythological sports construct that Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley were able to feed their every appetite without us ever reporting on it. Tiger Woods learned from them and then literally gets caught with his pants down because that's not an avenue we had ever studied before. And while you're not interested in doing some of this stuff, help me with this part of it, Armin. As a pop psychologist who has done the thorough reporting and is not judgmental, and has studied sexual addiction. What is your best theory on what's happening with sex in a parking lot with a Perkins waitress? Given that you are tying it to the roots of how he grew up and the lack of freedom and the discipline in his family, like how do we get from how he was raised to the sex addiction that would make you have a random, when you're Tiger Woods and you need random sex in a Perkins parking lot with a waitress? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I'll tell you, just to back up for a microsecond, I think Vegas is a, it's a bubble. You go to Vegas and you're protected. There's a reason that, that Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley, whatever they did there, 
never came out because that's part of that Vegas culture. What, what happens here stays here. But when you're in your backyard in Orlando, there's a different construct. And Tiger was in, Paris Hilton had a place down there where he would go at night and be in the VIP room. I talked to Fred Kalilian, who was the owner there, about what was happening in Tiger's world. But you're right, Dan. It's like if you're driving a, a Volkswagen down the highway, a Volkswagen bug, and then all of a sudden you start to get into a sports car, and then you're in a Porsche, and then you're in a Lamborghini, and then you're in a Ferrari, and then you're in a, in a Formula One race car. That was the acceleration of Tiger's need for pain relief. And I didn't, in the beginning, I didn't know anything about sex addiction other than I was going to read this one book. And that led me to Bart Mandel, and it led me out to Arizona for the meadows and talking to the people that were there. And I began to understand it as a form of pain relief. And Tiger must have been, and this is a pop psychologist here, but to have sex with Mindy Lawton in the parking lot of a church, a Perkins waitress that when you see her in the film, you, the first thing you think of is really, I mean, this is where you're headed and no disrespect to Mindy, but my God, she's not even in the same stratosphere as Elon. And you have that at home and you're having sex in your garage or on the couch of your own home with this woman. What are you thinking? And I don't, I mean, the answer is you're not thinking you're, you have this overwhelming need to satisfy some form of addiction, pain relief, as has been told to me time and time again. And that to me is like, if you want to point to something as a breaking point in Tiger's life or a, a moment where you're just going, he's just run off the road. I mean, you could point to that. And then when you do that, essentially in the National Enquirer's backyard, you're just asking for trouble. And that's what happened is once he got on their radar screen with Mindy Lawton, and even though they were able to bury that story in the men's journal article that was written. Tell the people who haven't seen the story how that transaction works to well, protect. That, that was amazing. I mean, that was the first time I'd been exposed to that whole phrase of catch and kill. I mean, they had Tiger dead to rights. And the story is the story goes, they called up, the National Enquirer called up Mark Steinberg, an IMG, and left a message is, what is Tiger Woods' relationship with Mindy Lawton? And hung up the phone. I can't imagine what the DEFCON 4 reaction on the other end was. And that began a long negotiation between one of the entities that was under the, the banner of which National Enquirer was under to have this cover story with Tiger Woods and his workout routine when he was committed to, at the, I believe at the time it was Golf Digest or Golf, one of the two major publications, and it was an exclusive arrangement. But that arrangement had to be rearranged so the Mindy Lawton story could be buried. That's one bullet that got dodged. But the National Enquirer now had him in their sights. And it was only a matter of time, and they were offering hundreds of thousands of dollars, I was told, to some of the bars, whether it was, I won't name them, but the ones, the noted bars in Orlando, to some of the owners and the general managers for tapes of Tiger in relationships with women, whether they were cocktail waitresses or wherever they were, in a semi-public way, in a VIP section, but still visible to a certain amount, number of people. And, you know, to their credit, they turned it down. 
But when they got on the Rachel Yucatel track and they followed her to New York and then she got on that plane to go to Australia to see Tiger at the Australian Masters, um, I mean, that was it. That was the end. And then when that thing, when that floodgate opens, you're going to get overrun. You're going to get buried pretty quickly. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. Fall Guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. For the uninitiated, that name that he just said, Rachel Yucatel, was the heart of Tiger's downfall. She had an affair with him, and it became very public. The story was interesting at the time. Armin, correct me if I'm wrong. I didn't believe that she had done many or any interviews before sitting down with you guys. I was surprised to see her there because I imagine her life got swept up and ruined in this. How did you gain her trust? And am I wrong when I say that that's one of the first interviews she's done? No, you're absolutely right. It was the first major sit down interview she's never done. And I mean, major, I mean, of any kind of any significance whatsoever. I mean, I just looked it up today. Rachel was 34 years old in 2009 and, you know, a stunning woman, very smart, very sophisticated, you know, had been the top VIP hostess in both in New York at the Griffin and a number of top clubs in Las Vegas. You know, as she said in the doc, she, Tiger and, and uh, some very non-prominent professional athletes came over to the Griffin one night. Rachel was there. She met Tiger. Uh, he immediately texted her that evening and that began uh, their relationship. It was interesting for us because I mentioned about 95% of the people that we talked to originally decided that they would work with us in some form or fashion. Rachel was not one of those. We both Jeff and I reached out. Rachel did not really respond in any form or fashion. And then Jeff just told me this about, I don't know, it must've been about three weeks ago when, or a month ago when the doc came out that Rachel was on a beach in the Caribbean and she read the New York times review of the Tiger Woods book, which Dwight Garner did. And it was, I mean, I, I'm still to this day so grateful and astonished as to how good it was and how good it was for us. She read the review, she got the book, read the book, and then she immediately almost texted Jeff and said, you know, I'd like to talk to you guys because she was impressed with how fair we were with her in the book and the texture and the tone of our writing and reporting. That began a communication really between Jeff and Rachel for the better part of, you know, several months. And then when Alex Gibney obtained the rights to the book, we had a drinks in New York, Rachel, myself and Jeff and Alex, where she could meet Alex. Alex could explain his vision for the doc, what he was going to attempt to do. And then Alex was able to put Rachel in touch with really Matt Hamachek, one of the primary two directors on the on the dock and and Jenna Millman, one of the top producers. And that began a whole different relationship between Matt and Jenna and Rachel. And in the end, Rachel felt comfortable enough to agree to the interview. And then she sat, I was told, for eight hours for the interview. And 
I sat for five and I know what that was like. It's exhausting in so many ways. And I can't imagine that she spent eight hours, but to her credit, I do know that they were extremely concerned that the portrayal of Rachel's relationship would be true to Rachel's feelings about it. And I think unquestionably that comes across in the doc. And she was a pivotal, as you can only imagine, a pivotal person. Not only does she end the act one in this great cliffhanger, but she is the centerpiece, I think, in many ways of act two. And, um, you know, I think without Rachel, you only get a certain part of the story that that you're really missing without her in it. Your timing with her is so great, too, because I imagined as she told her story how liberating it must have been Uh, to get this weight off of her. Like, my guess is that she easily had the stamina for those eight hours specifically because she's wanted this off of her for more than a decade. She got buried in this. You're absolutely right. It was liberating for her. And I think, you know, to be able to, I mean, I can't imagine carrying around whether it's what her relationship with Tiger was or your some other deep, dark secret that you, you carry individually for a decade or more, and to be just pillared the way that she was in the media. And she said it to her credit, you know, she was not the mist. She was a mistress. She was the whore. She was all of those things that people, those words just so easily come out of people's mouths. And to me, one of the most cringeworthy moments in the doc is when the paparazzi are just pounding her to death. And it's not just the cameras, it's the questions. They're so degrading of her as a person. And I go back and I understand, I think I understand what it must have been like for Elon to see some of this, but you also have to understand, I think, in a very human way, what it was like for Rachel to go through this. And nobody cared. She was exhibit A of of the hussy or whatever you want to call her. And that, that view, that moment at the view where they're they're just making fun of her for their own enjoyment and for the audience's enjoyment. And I'm like, I mean, that's just gutter journalism to me. And I don't say that without thought going into it, but if that's where you're going to travel, I mean, to me, that's like, I'm trying to go the other way. You know, I'm just trying to elevate rather than denigrate. And I, you know me, I've been tough on people and I've been, I have a reputation for asking very direct questions, being prepared, not taking a lot of bullshit from people, but I'm also respectful to people when I sit down with them. And I think that's a reason people sit with me because they know I'm going to have a respect for their answers unless they want to, you know, you want to cross swords with me. I'll do that too. But in the end, it's about respect and it's about professionalism. And I didn't see a whole hell of a lot of that in Rachel's life for a long time. And I think what we gave her was that opportunity to be in a, in a, in a world where, where her opinion was respected. You generally have to calm down. This sword crossing is unnecessary here. We haven't (laughs) elevated to that level. You triggered a a number of follow-ups, though. When you say cringeworthy moments in the dock, what are the top ones for you? Because there's something else I want want to ask you about, Elin. I imagine that was the only voice missing, and I wonder how close you got to talking to her because I can't imagine the suffering of that woman having to endure that in public. I, we didn't get that close. We made some inquiries and, and we were, you know, politely declined. I think when to be able to get the writer from People magazine that wrote really the only story of significance about Elon, which was the cover story of People, was, I think, a, a significant moment in the doc. 
that, you know, mommy's got a boo-boo in her heart, you know, that whole you can't really see where the pain is. She's such a class act. She's so smart. All the people that I've talked to, that's really, they don't talk about her beauty as much as they talk about her brains and how smart she is. And so when you take that into consideration, you know, would we have liked to have Elon? Yes, but I completely understand her decision not to speak in, in any way, shape or form in public beyond what she did with people. Cringeworthy, I think for me, that what we talked about, I mean, that tabloid journalism side of it to me was, that was a look in a mirror that I, that I was like, wow, this is where we are as a society. And I think now you have to remember that was 2009 and 2010. We're a decade and more after that. And we haven't had one of those in a while, certainly not of the significance of Tiger Woods. And I can only imagine in this day and age, the fall from grace for an athlete, what that will be like. And, um, I, you know, I'm sure we're going to witness it because it's going to happen somewhere somehow, some way. But um, I think that to me was the one part that that really disturbed me because I was reliving it in a way. And then the other one was Billy Payne at the Masters and his, I think, as we talked about, just a completely inappropriate time and place to lecture people about their own. It was just so hypocritical. Well, I, I want to bring this up because I have a number of questions there. For those who haven't seen the documentary, what Armin is talking about there is basically this blowhard running an event known as the Masters, okay? And I want to talk to you about the race elements of this, Armin, is a place that I would have liked to have seen you go deeper, even though you went plenty deep because what was happening around Tiger to me was fascinating as a prism to view the way the customer looks at the athlete so often in sports, across sports coverage, Armin, where Tiger Woods was a proud member of their club when he was behaving quote-unquote white. And then what ended up happening was a betrayal that felt like, oh, he's not the moral man we thought he was. And then it yeah. felt almost like he returned to being black, even though he's always self-identified as, no, 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 don't necessarily make me black because he's always been very comfortable in this world. The race part of this I thought was fascinating. And you went pretty deep. I just wanted to see you go deeper. You're right. I think the racial side of this Tiger doc was fascinating for all of us. And Sam Pollard is a black producer that was very involved in the doc. We were acutely aware that, you know, it was predominantly white people talking about an iconic black athlete, even though he doesn't see himself as so much as black as he does multiracial. You couldn't dismiss it at all, especially at the Masters. I mean, my God, when, you know, the only people that were, you know, they're black there were either carrying clubs and, or they were serving people in the, in the clubhouse. So all of that went into the equation. I, I just, I thank God that Bryant decided to participate in the doc. And I thought he was, he was pivotal um, because A, he's so smart. Bryant well, Gumbel for the audience. Bryant, Bryant Gumbel, Gumbel. Sorry. Bryant Gumbel. He's, he's just so articulate about these things, not just, race, but in so much of sport. And he's not afraid to call bullshit on stuff in any way, shape or form. So, and I thought Pete McDaniel for us, you know, terrific golf writer, African-American was another source of just real texture and context for us in ways that, that it's impossible. You know, that's one of the things that, you know, Brian Koppelman, who's got this, does billions and he's a terrific television producer 
he's got a podcast called The Moment, and I was on there with Jeff, and he really kind of raked us over the coals about how can two white guys write a book about an iconic black athlete? And our answer was, well, when you spend three years researching that person's life, I think it gives you the right to try to, in some way, shape, or form, put that person's life in context. And whether black athlete, white athlete, Hispanic athlete, you name it, athlete, I saw a person I was trying to understand. And you're right, golf, and I think that's a really interesting part of Tiger's legacy is as much as he has tried through the Tiger Woods Foundation and through his work with First Tee to spark a evolution of African-American black golfers on the, on the tour and, and in college, in the end, it, it really hasn't been of great benefit. And I think the Tiger Woods Foundation, far more than golf, has had a, an incredible impact on underprivileged children in Los Angeles and around, around the country and other Tiger Woods Foundation offices. But as far as, I mean, I think right now, if you, I mean, other than Harold Varner III and a couple of the, now the young black golfers who have found their way onto select events, that's what you're witnessing on the PGA Tour. It's still 99.9% white. And, you know, I think that has a lot more to do with the economics of golf than it has to do with anything as far as, you know, its color is concerned, because the opportunities just aren't there, no matter what the PGA Tour has done and Tiger's done and others have done. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I want to circle back around on a couple of things that we just talked about. It sounds like, Armin, that... When you are having your cringeworthy moments in a movie that you made very artfully, trying not to be judgmental and being fair and telling the human stories of all the parties involved, that you arrived at cringeworthy the most when looking in a mirror on what journalism is. Now, you are Man. an honorable journalist. I can't believe, though, that it was that bad for you, where you were disgusted with us because we were the thing that made Tiger Woods have that embarrassing press conference in front of a blue screen where he's got to hug his mom because we all have to be able to see Tiger Woods totally broken on something that would have broken any family apart. Well, you know, there's this word that's called the media. And I, you know, that is a catch all catch basin for so much. You have one end, you have, you know, people that have absolutely no scruples when it comes to putting things, um, whether it's on social media or on a cable channel that is just nothing but clickbait. And then I've been fortunate enough to work at 60 Minutes where I don't think there's a, there's a higher standard of journalism that has ever been created than what I would go through to put stories on that show. So I find it to be, I get upset when people criticize the media because that's like criticizing space. You know, I, there's so much out there. And to me, um, I would rather be specific about people that had absolutely no concerns about anything other than making a name for themselves 
in what they said about Tiger Woods or what they say about athletes to having a take on something. And the one of the reasons that I'm going to polish your knob a little bit here is in terms of one of the reasons I listen to you is because you, you think about what you say. Yes, there are moments when you're just entertaining us, but for there's a reason that you know that you're a columnist that you think things through and that you have points of view. I get so sick and fucking tired of listening to people that don't know what they're talking about and feel the need to spout something out because they're trying to make a name for themselves. So you've now kind of touched the the hot button with me, and I've been around long enough to feel like I I have a right to this opinion. I have moments where, you know, the profession of journalism just, I, 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 it's a lowercase p for me. And I'm, I'm really, you know, I fight that with people because I, I know how much good is out there. I know how much, how hard people work. I know when people would say to me, like, I know that CBS News is a leftist organization. I would say, you have no idea what you're talking about. Because I sat in those meetings where these decisions were being made on what we would put on the air every single night. And there wasn't a word said about left or right or liberal or conservative. It was like, tell me the best story you possibly can. And is it fair? Is it accurate? Is it true in the definition that closest definition we can get to truth? And if the answer was yes, and I answered to Bob Schieffer and and Scott Pelley and Katie Couric and Peter Jennings and Ted Koppel during the course of my career, there was, I can tell you, there was no agenda. It was tell us the best story you possibly can. Mike, I need your help here because I'm uncomfortable in a couple of places. First of all, Armin Katayan's language in a few different places in this podcast has been aggressively double entendre sexual in a way that I don't <laughs> think he's intended. He just did a polish the First knob. I can do that. He did a polish the knob and a touch the hot button. And I want to talk to him about journalism and 60 Minutes and what he's complaining about there, which is that's the highest end of vetted, meticulous content, but over the last 35 years from Sports Illustrated on, Armin Katayan has seen a bludgeoning, a hatcheting of real news into fake news and not a lot of discerning between what actually goes into what 60 Minutes is, which is as good a journalistic entity as there's ever been in this country, and it wasn't politically based, but I don't know with how aggressive that Armin's language is here on the sexual stuff. He had something banging hard and fast earlier. Like I'm no, not. No, I didn't. You no, did. No. You did. I. I was gonna call yeah. you out on it at the time. You sent me. You sent me those that list of things I could say, Dan, and those were like a one and one a. I was like, you said I had to say something about a knob. I don't know. We're all adults here. We're all professionals. So that obviously leads to this question, Armin, Scott Pelley and those pecs so in the, person. The arms. I know the he arms really enjoyed that Hugh Jackman piece that he did just because he got to clang and bang with Hugh Jackman. <laughs> had, did you see where it was like he had, it was perfect. The sweat on his tel- on his t-shirt was perfect. We all saw that, you know, and I, I was like, are you kidding me? I've worked out with Pelley in, you know, in the same gym when we're in the same hotel. 
it's not a pretty sight for me. I can tell you. No, like, but no, no, but Mike, soon. let's let's examine this with a sixty minutes correspondent. <laughs> Scott Pelley absolutely did that piece just after all these years at sixty minutes, so that he could strut around as guy who's clearly very comfortable naked in the locker room with other men, and he could strut around with the giant biceps and throw around clang and bang with Hugh Jackman. I imagine everything that Scott Pelley pitches involves him taking his shirt off. Like I really want to. Dis- I, no, I wouldn't go that far. But I got to tell you something. When I saw that, you know, I was like, oh, God, it's Hugh Jackman. I got to see this piece. Right. And I hadn't seen it. Sometimes we get to screen other pieces. You know, we'll be in the screen room and stuff. And I saw that. I was like, oh, my God, he's just. And that was during Scott's days when he was just, you know, he was also the anchor of the evening news. And he, he was eating about a thousand calories a day and he was working out like a fiend. And I just kept looking at him going. Then I saw that piece with Jackman. and I'm like, Jesus, he's just ripped. And, and as I said, you know, I worked out with Sims a couple times, Phil, and or more than a couple times, we did it a lot when we were on the road together. And I would sometimes just hit him on the back, you know, like, hey, good to see you, Phil. And I swear to God, Dan, it was like a piece of concrete. Yeah. You know, you'd hit it and you're like, my hand doesn't even move. You know, it doesn't even go in. It doesn't indent in any way, shape or form. And then I would be lifting like, you know, 50 pounds and Phil would be over there with 250 and I was just like, really? Okay, I'm just going to go on the treadmill and, and not even bother with this because it's, it's grade school. He was an anchor. He was indeed an anchor. An anchor you could tie your battleship that up to. That is so true. I mean, oh, yeah. I've been trying to figure out, like, I can imagine Pelly walking in and thinking to himself, because he absolutely trained for that, and he thought to himself some version of the joke, huge Jackman and was thinking of yeah. himself like that he's a huge jacked man and there's also a piece they're going to be doing about the actor Hugh Jackman I think there was I mean look when you have the best cameraman in the world working for you and you're Scott Pelley at that point in time you can pretty much you know do whatever you want and and I, I gotta say to his credit as I mentioned I don't know whether they spritzed that and I would say this to Scott I didn't say it but I would Make the, make the accusation here, Armin. I want you to. I want to make news right here. Say right now to Pelly what you've always wanted to say to him about this because well, your accusation say, is who, so. Who spritzed that? It was like perfect. You know, it just looked like right here. Mm-hmm. And I was like, what, where did you find that shirt? Did you like? Did you bring that with you? It was already, you know, pre-wet. You know, and you just like he just put this on. He did. And it was. It was like it was so sixty because it was. You know, you're you're looking for those moments. Um, no, you but know, you're you're accusing him of fraud there. You're you're accusing no, that. No, no, yes, you are. You are. Scott. You are. That's about the. I mean, look, if I'm if I'm putting down markers on the best journalists that have ever I've ever worked with, Scott Pelley's in that conversation for sure. Has his piece on the seedy underbelly of Mr. Olympia come out yet? <laughs> <laughs> you know he's working. No, yeah. No. 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 Armin, he's been working his whole life on this story. <laughs> one of the one of the things that you mentioned about journalism and as it ties to Rachel Yucatel and getting her trust, I felt like that she basically in eight hours gave you the story that a lot of people would have paid a lot of money to have read in a book. Yes. Yeah, you're right. And I can tell you straight up, nobody was compensated in any way, shape or form in the doc. And we, Jeff and I didn't pay a cent to anybody to cooperate with us. That's just a, you're cutting your own throat with that kind of journalism. And uh, I mean, I think Rachel's personal story is worthy of long form journalism, whether it's a book or whether it's um, just a story of her own, because I know what she went through in terms of her 
non-disclosure agreement and how difficult it was for her after that. And I think that she, you know, there was a lot of thought on her end before she sat down with us. And, you know, that, that kind of trust factor, you know, it doesn't happen every day, Dan. I just imagine, I don't know, but I imagine she's gotten offers for her story. She sat down and gave you for free. It sounds like something that would have been very, that story is one I would want to read what this did, especially now, Armin in 2021, when we're seeing how much has run through the filter of male privilege over the years, where this woman gets sideswiped on quote unquote immorality and becomes a national punchline for being the one who wrecked Tiger Woods' life when it seems like her truth is that she fell in love with him. Well, I think that's no question that she was in love with Tiger. That's to me that that comes across loud and clear in the in the doc. I mean, I I didn't spend a lot of time with Rachel. I had that one big meeting with her and Alex and and Jeff. I would not be surprised if she's been asked over the years to tell her story and that people have been willing to compensate her for it. But I think to her credit, you know, she she held out and she wasn't going to do it until she felt like she had found the right place for it. And, um, you know, when it's HBO and it's Alex Gibney and it's the two directors that were involved and Matt Heineman and Matt Hamachek, you're not going to get much better than that. And I think Jeff and I, because of our reputations in the book, the way it was received, it was it was the right time and the right place for it. But I've I think her story and I don't know it as well as I think Jeff does, but from a storytelling perspective, certainly what she went through after 9-11, she lost her husband. You know, she's had a very rich life in a lot of ways. So would I watch it? Yeah, I'd watch it. Did any part of the tiger machinery try to get you to stop doing what you were doing? Not to my knowledge. Um, In the beginning in the book, what happened was it took us about a year before we reached out officially to Mark Steinberg, his agent, and Glenn Greenspan, who was then Tiger's top PR person, who formerly was the top person at the Masters for their public relations and communications. And we immediately, uh, we received an antagonistic response to our request for them to even consider an interview. And it was, it was right off the bat, it was a we weren't on any sort of level ground at all. What they wanted, the conditions that they set for us to even discuss an interview with Tiger were, we had to tell them everybody that we talked to, both on the record and off the record. We had to provide them a a list of questions prior to them even considering an interview. And that just wasn't something that we were going to, that we were going to do. So, and in the end, you know, when the book came out, Mark Steinberg said on a press release that was, you know, full of falsehoods and, and um, did his best to denigrate what we were doing. But, you know, the book speaks for itself and um, the reporting speaks for itself. And so we, we were always um, of the mind that uh, I reacted a little bit. I'm the more fire to Jeff's ice in terms of, of those kinds of things. But in the end, we let the work speak for itself. And I, I do know for the doc that there were multiple attempts to communicate with Tiger's camp. And that was met with, um, the decision to decline to be interviewed. So, but in the end, I'm sure Tiger at some point in time is going to do his own story. I do know that he's working on his own book right now. And, um, you know, when that comes out, I'm sure it'll be of interest to a large number of people. But for our purposes, I don't think we missed Tiger in the dock. Um, if he would have been as open as 
as some athletes are, then yes, maybe it would have worked, but we oh, were never going to get there. Armin, no, but I would have preferred to hear from his ex-wife than from Tiger. Tiger's well, yeah. Tiger's a robot who's too well rehearsed and too sculpted in this landscape to ever give you anything that ever resembles honesty, vulnerability, humanity, like all the wires and stuff of his upbringing. I, I marveled at the fact, Armin, that the Green Beret was not the tough one in his parenting. I didn't... I, no. I'd like to talk to you about this some more, but there's no more time. I've got to stop talking to you about <laughs> You're this. You're tired of me. So we will pick it up some other time. I just want to add one thing to it as a uh, spoiler for people who haven't seen the documentary. If you have not seen it, you should see it because I really do think it's a bit of a work of art and it was an artfully told fair story. But between parts one and two, the teaser you were talking about earlier of Rachel, you could tell coming into your screen and into the life. You've been telling the biography, the roots of the story. The craft is really impeccable, I thought. And then she comes into the screen with just the whiff of sexuality. And here comes the TMZ part of our story. And look, this is clearly out of Vegas and it's refined. And she turns to the camera and says some version of what do you guys want to ask me? Like she's chewing yeah, on chainsaws. Was that something she was asked to do? Or was that a natural moment? I don't know. I, I called Matt Hamachek when I saw the rough cut, one of the rough cuts. And I, I basically said, are you kidding me? I said, wow, that is some cliffhanger. That's some ending to act one. And I never asked him. I don't think I know from my interview, they never tried to put words in my mouth. They never, not once. Would they ask a question multiple times? Yes, because they were trying to get a refined answer sometimes or maybe a different take on something. But knowing what I know about Matt Hamachek and Matt Heineman, I, I find it extremely hard to believe they would ask anybody to say lines so they can use them in a specific way. I, I, I really don't believe they did. I didn't mean to accuse you. I just meant it was that perfect that I couldn't tell. I just tell. go right to the other side of these I things. Couldn't, I couldn't tell. It was so perfect a moment between the two acts and as a bridge to the next kind of storytelling yeah. as a cliffhanger that I thought to myself, it's so perfect that I can't believe they got that as a natural organic moment. I didn't mean I to know. accuse I mean, the 60 minutes journalist that. of fraud. All right, relax. You're too defensive. Relax. You're such a tough inquisitor, though. You know, I, I, I get with you. It's like I, I'm this is an intellectual battle, Dan. So I'm not I know who I'm talking to here. This is not a this is not, a, you know, Tin Pan Alley here. I, I, I just uh, I respect your opinion a lot. And I, I thank you for the nice things you said about the doc because it means a lot to me. And um, I'll do your show anytime you want. Well, Armin, what I appreciate. Right. And what you articulate. And it's the reason I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about one of the seminal athletes of our time is the things that you're espousing here about journalism and being meticulous about this stuff, whether it's sports or America as democracy shakes and we need a checks and balances. I really appreciate that you bring this kind of vetting and fairness to your work. It matters that there has to be a standard above the casual standard and the work you did on Tiger Woods is not a precedent I had seen anywhere in my Tiger Woods coverage that included books and pop psychology. You just really captured a man. Ah, uh, come on, All man. Right. We're clear right. on that. You're, All you're right. gushing All right. as if Scott Pelly were in All the right. Zone. Okay, my bad. I didn't mean to take my shirt off. Dan. Didn't mean to we'll polish your knob. Okay, get out of here, Armin. Good talking to you.